Our uh, second reading comes from Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. In the Pew Bibles, it uh, is on page 189. It's titled, The Ten Commandments, but we'll mainly be only talking the first three. (laughs) Verse 1. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our forefathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Here ends the reading. May God bless his word. Well, good morning and greetings, friends. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, it seems that almost a world away from Ephesians that we've been doing in the last few, the last few weeks. But last week we were looking, Chris was speaking on Ephesians chapter 6, which very closely linked in with the fifth commandment of honouring our mothers and fathers. So, we're going back a few commandments. We're looking at one to three and looking at how these commandments specifically focus to how we relate to God and other gods as it could be proposed as people try and put idols in his place so often. So, as we approach God's word, let's ask him for help in understanding it and uh, help in, in living it out as well. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the chance to... Uh, sit under your word this morning. Help us to understand it well, help us to use it well and help us in all things to bring you honour and glory. For your great name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you're an instructions person. I'm not. I prefer to jump right in and given a problem, given something and like, let's figure this out and the instructions are there in case I can't figure it out after several tries. Um, As an engineering lecturer, I sometimes tell my students, if you can't work it out without the instructions, the user interface isn't designed well enough. Uh, It should be obvious. But some people love instructions. And Sarah's mum is one of those people that loves instructions. The first thing out of the box is not the product, it's the instruction manual, which needs to be read and understood, and then you can take it out. Uh, Recently, we had our dishwasher pack up while she was down visiting us. And after a few, years, a few hours of pulling it apart and fixing it all up and then finding that it was 20 years old and you couldn't replace the seals anymore, we were up for a new dishwasher. 
And we gave her the special treat of giving her the instruction manual the day before I installed it to say, you can read it and tell, it, tell us how it works. And that was a special treat because she loves the instruction manual. Now, I think often we can figure things out without reading the instruction manual. We can skip it and get most of the functionality, most of the important things, but we may miss some key points or we may miss some warnings, those warnings that are on the side that say, warning, don't do this, or warning, do this first. Some things are a bit safer and easier for us to figure out than other things. Now, we've been, a par- we've been parents for... Uh, almost two years now and before we had Luke we read lots of books and since having Luke we've read lots more books um, to try and work out how to be good godly parents and we got lots of things out of them and talked to lots of people and I think some of the important things can be summarised in this nice little infographic here. If If you're not parents yet, these are important things Exercising your baby, the weights aren't the way to go. Fun games with the baby, as much as I like chess, Luke's not quite up to it yet. Washing your baby, sometimes they get really dirty, but still the hose isn't the way to go. And shopping, it's a bit hard to see, but there's some little legs hanging out of that trolley at some random point there, and that's not the way to do shopping. But realistically, we've figured those things out. And most of them were pretty simple to figure out. But what about thinking about wider things, a manual of how we actually live our life? Sometimes we take similar sorts of approaches to the instruction manual. We think, ah, maybe I can just figure it out myself. I'll just coast along, see how things work, it'll be okay. Or sometimes we might think, I'll follow someone that looks like they've got everything together. It might be someone like Oprah, she, she speaks confidently, she seems to know what's going on, or it might be Dr Phil, he always has advice, or it might be Judge Judy, she's always telling people to pull their head in, this is how you live life, you should know it by now. Or they might think, I'll just come up with my own rule book, I'll invent it from scratch, I won't go into it thinking, I don't have a rule book, I'll make my own. And there's been a few prominent examples of people doing this recently. One of them is... Richard Dawkins, probably the world's best-known atheist at the moment. And he thought, I'll create my own Ten Commandments. I don't like God's ones very much or supposed God's ones. I'll make my own. And one of them was this. Never seek to censor or cut yourself off from dissent. Respect the right of others to disagree with you. You might think, oh, that seems like a noble thing. But the issue is that even his own commandments he can't keep because he makes comments like this. It's absolutely safe to say if you meet someone who claims not to believe in evolution, that person's either ignorant, stupid or insane. Cutting oneself off from dissent, disagreeing, respect the right of others to disagree with you, it doesn't seem to be working. Another example. Does anyone know who this person is? It's a local. Well, semi-local is from Melbourne. Uh, The heretical minister, Dr McNabb. Uh, from the city, posted on the billboard at the front of his church this statement here, the Ten Commandments, the most negative document ever written. Then he thought, I'll write my own. I'll write my own Ten Commandments. And there are things like, believe in a good presence in your life. Call that good presence God. Why not? Or be part of an evolving life-enhancing faith that will bring new resilience to the future. 
what does that actually mean? It's not something that God's told us to do. It's not something that he's told us to follow. But why would someone that doesn't believe in God in the first place and someone who completely distorts who God is try and create their own set of commandments? Why would they try and create their own rules? Why would they try and legislate morality? For a consistent atheist, there is no right and wrong. There is no good and evil. There is no morality. Everything's just atoms and molecules. It doesn't really matter. Because there's, there's no rules, because there's no God that makes the rules. So why would you come up with your own? And I think the reason is we've got this inbuilt sense of right and wrong, a morality, something that points to God's existence. And Romans chapter 1 actually points to that. It's telling us that we have this knowledge of God, but we suppress it. And the more we suppress it, the further away we get to realising what his right and wrong is. But the point is to be being moral agents, more than just atoms and molecules that are thrown together, because when we see something wrong, we know it's wrong. But for an atheist, you can't actually say something's wrong. You can't say that's good or evil, because there intrinsically is no good and evil in that particular worldview. So rather than try and fumble around and create our own standards and try and work them out as we go, let's look at what God says. Let's look at what, how he's said to live. But before we get into that, one last caveat. And the caveat is that although we're meant to follow God's commandments, he's given them for us to follow, we'll fail. We'll fail and we'll continue to fail keeping them. And unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately, that's actually part of their purpose. It shows us something, it teaches us something. In Galatians 3.24, Paul tells us something about God's law, something about his commandments. He says it's a tutor or a guide to bring us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. It's not these commandments that actually save us. They're actually to bring us to Christ. They help us realise we're, we're sinful before God. We can't meet his perfect standard. We need someone else who can. They bring us to Christ and show our own inability to do so. We see from Romans 3.20, something else Paul wrote, that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. We can't say, okay, I've I've ticked the box on the first commandment today and we'll work on the second tomorrow and, and hopefully we'll work our way up to somehow pleasing God. We can't do it. None of us are perfect. Well, that of course is none of us except the one. None of us except Jesus, who has actually perfectly kept these commandments. He showed it's possible, but none of us can do it. And he takes our place in God's punishment. And so we don't anymore receive God's condemnation for failing to keep these commandments. He's done it for us, he's done it perfectly for us, and we get this great swap that occurs. Our sin goes to him, his righteousness comes to us, and we have freedom in that in Christ. People might say, well, is that an excuse just to throw the commandments out the window and say, we don't need to listen to anything God says. We can live our own way and Jesus has made us right and it's all good. It's not the way. That's not a loving thing to do. That's not how we love God and Paul makes that clear. In Romans 6.1 it tells us this is definitely not the way it happens. We don't sin so that God's grace can be magnified in the bounds. We turn to God in thankfulness and gratefulness and say, God, you're amazing. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for rescuing me. 
and we ask God to continually transform us. So, as we think about these commandments, don't think that we'll try and earn God's favour and earn our way into his good books, earn our way into heaven and say, we've done enough to get into heaven, we've gotten over the line. No, we fail again and again and again. But we have Christ who's passed the perfect test. We have Christ that didn't fail at all. Now, if you haven't put your trust in Christ, maybe you're thinking, ah, these commandments, I'll try and nail them this week. I'll try and nail them this week and get myself over the line. It's not going to work. If you haven't put your trust in Christ, what's stopping you? Why delay any further? Be good to have a chat with someone that you know is a Christian, know that's a follower of Christ and see what difference it makes, how it changes them and how it gives them assurance of what's to come. Having said that, let's go straight into the commandments now. And commandment number one, we had told to us that you have no other gods before me. As prefixed by, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What's the background here? We had these people that they were working, God's people, they were slaves in Egypt. They had come 400 odd years earlier under Joseph, escaping a famine. The Pharaoh was good at the time. Life was good. They were in a privileged position. But they'd grown and become slaves and they were, there were heavy taskmasters over them and they were crying out to God, save us God, rescue us, this is terrible. And then God brings in Moses. We heard of Moses this morning in the kids' talk. God brings in Moses all these signs and wonders and then he brings the people out of Egypt. And some of the things with these signs and wonders, they're just showing the people and the Egyptians how superior God is to their so-called gods. Think about some of the plagues that happened in Egypt, all these signs. The Egyptians worship the sun. What does God do? He makes it dark in the middle of the day. No sun. They worship the Nile. God makes the Nile bleed. It's full of blood. As Arnie might say, if it bleeds, you can kill it. They worship flies. They worship frogs. God gives them more flies than a thousand Aussie barbecues, more frogs than a thousand French restaurants. They worship Serpia, the God who protects people from the locusts. God shows them exactly how useless that God is. He sends more locusts than what they've ever seen in their lives eats up everything. Finally, they worship the Pharaoh. God shows them how useless that, mis- that worship and how misplaced that worship is. He kills the son of the Pharaoh and kills the firstborn. The Pharaoh can't do anything. God shows how these gods of the world that people have created are so useless, so powerless, not worthy of worship whatsoever. And then to his people... As the rescuer, as the one that's come in and drawn them out, he gives this relational command. He essentially says, I rescued you. I'm your God. You won't have any other gods. I'll set the rules. You might think, well, this was written to them. He rescued them. We were never in Egypt. I've never been to Egypt. How did he rescue us? Well, he rescues us not from a literal Egypt, but a figurative captivity a captivity in sin, something that we were bound in, something that we couldn't escape on our own and yet he's rescued us from that. He's come and removed those chains. He didn't need to part a Red Sea to allow us to escape from that. He parted something very different. When Jesus was on the cross, what was the thing that was parted? Jesus dies, gives up his life 
And the temple curtain, the temple curtain that was four inches thick and 60 feet high, breaks in two. The temple curtain which separates God's people from the most holy place where God's presence is, is broken in half. And it's broken in half, not from the bottom to the top, as if man could somehow work their way up to being in God's presence. It's broken from the top to the bottom, 60 feet in the air, broken in half, and now we have access to God through Christ. So in light of this, this command is given to the Israelites, but it's also given to us as God's people. You shan't have any other gods before me. And it's this sort of commandment that the new atheists arc up and they say, what an egotistical God. He's prideful, he's arrogant, he's jealous. Why no other gods? How ridiculous that you could say something like that. He must have some sort of inferiority complex if he can't live with other gods being present in people's lives. And I think a really helpful analogy at this point, an analogy that's used all the way throughout the Bible, is the analogy of marriage. God talks about marriage as being something that signifies, something that mirrors his relationship between himself and his people. We have his unfaithful people again and again and again turning their backs on him, thinking, I'll just live my own way, I'll have a bit of these other gods, I'll follow them and then I'll come back to God when it suits me. And we have God being very unhappy with this. That seems natural, doesn't it? Think about our own lives. Think about our own marriages. If in a marriage one partner is going around flirting with people, or even a lot worse, doesn't the other partner have reason to be concerned, worried, jealous, all these things? In that case, isn't it a good thing when they've made a promise, made a covenant, made a commitment, and yet see their partner straying off? And hear what happens with God. We make this commitment to him. His people make this commitment to him. We'll follow your commandments. And he sees them. The golden calf, worshipping this God, worshipping this God. Doesn't he have right to be jealous? His people aren't faithful to him. He's perfectly faithful to them, to the cross, to dying for them, and yet they're not. And so I think we need to ask ourselves, what things in our lives, who, what are we putting besides God in our lives? What things are we setting as the centre of our universe? What things are we worshipping? What other gods are we having? And one trap is we say, hang on a sec, I'm not worshipping false gods. Those were for ancient people or for different religions. I'm not in modern day Australia calling on Baal, Bacchus or Buddha, all these other gods or a million and one other ones. Well, maybe Bacchus, the god of wine, but uh, not so much the other ones. I was reading during the week that in Australia, the average family household spends $32.50 on alcohol a week. Apparently, it's $40 in Western Australia, I'm not sure why. We spend $12.57 on tobacco a week. To our churches, we give $2.97. To charity, we give... $4.26. It's an order of magnitude difference between them. And in Western culture, one of the biggest temptations is to make ourselves the God. We don't need another God. We live for ourselves. We live for here and now. Think about it. You turn on the TV. You look at billboards. There's advertising everywhere. And without this message of this is what you need to be happy, 
this is what you need, the advertisers may well, well pack up and go home. In a world we're told, mostly subtly, you're the centre of the universe. This is what you need. Believe in yourself. You can do anything. You need these possessions. This will make you happy. This is the status you need. This is the esteem you need. People need to think of you like this. Think about what Paul says for a moment. In Philippians 3, he talks about his rich heritage as a Pharisee and then he says, I count all things of myself and my status rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Christ is the most important. Not these other things, not status, not ego, not possessions, not these other things. It's God, not us. He's the number one and he needs to be the number one. We then had the second commandment. You turn your Bibles to the second commandment. You shall not make for yourselves any idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shan't bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a, and a, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In essence, what we're talking about here is not making something and bowing down to it. So is this put Christian woodcarvers, Christian metalworkers, toy makers, photographers out of business? They're making all these things and we enjoy them. I don't think so. Some people might go to the extreme and say we're not allowed to have any of these things. But I don't think that's the real purpose of the law at all. In fact, in the old temple, God commissioned the Israelites and said, I want you to build these beautiful things to decorate the temple. Sculptures of angels. He told Moses to build a golden snake that the people would look to and be saved. It's not the mere act of creating or designing something, otherwise I may as well give up engineering and stop 3D printing and stop building robots and all those sort of things. It's this act of creating something and then worshipping our creation. The first scripture reading we had from Isaiah puts it so well, I think. Isaiah shows the craziness of worshipping something we've made and mocks it. He says, in his ancient cultural setting, people, they go to great pains, they choose the tree that they want, the cedar, the oak, the pine, whatever it is. They chop it down. And with half the tree, they do a bare grill. They light a fire, keep themselves warm, cook their dinner. With the other half, they take a chisel to it. Tap away, tap away, tap away. Create their God, create their whatever it is, their idol. And then they bow down to it and say, you're my God, you have saved me. How ridiculous. What separates that half of the tree from the half of the tree that made the fire? Half an hour before, there were a full tree that wasn't cut down. How ridiculous that we'd worship these sorts of things. We take a piece of wood, we chisel it, we take a piece of metal, we, we mould it and create an idol from it. And yet, in our modern day world, a lot of our idols aren't all that much different. Think of idols like, think, think of objects that people esteem and they worship and value so highly. Think of our cars. Think of our money. Think of our job title. Think of our fame. Think of these things. Think of even cowhide. Wait a sec, cowhide? Where does that come into it? Well, let's put a modern day Isaiah tilt on it. We have our cow. We milk it. I know a little bit about that. I've married a dairy farmer's daughter. 
At some point we kill it. We eat it. And then we take the hide, we turn it into a football, soccer ball or something like that and we kick it around on one of our hallowed grounds. It becomes our idol. You might say, hang on a sec. You're saying football's bad, soccer's bad, all those things. No, no, no. Are our cars bad? No, no, no. The problem is we take good things and we turn them into God things. We take good things and we turn them into things that we try and derive a sense of ultimate value from, an ultimate purpose from. We think, if my team doesn't win this year, I'll be awful. If, if my car gets damaged, if it gets in a crash, it, it's the end. If I lose my job, which I worship, if, I, if I'm in a different position where people don't respect me, this is where I get my meaning from. This is where I get my purpose from. They're idols. It's not a piece of wood or a piece of metal that we can stick on our desk and, and light a fire to and bow down to. It's something that we do all the time and live our life out to worshipping this particular idol, uplifting this particular idol. What does God tell us? You worship him. You worship Christ. Not in the form of pictures, Idols, icons, we don't need to hold up a cross and say we're worshipping this. We're worshipping the person, the one who saved us. We're worshipping God. So to reflect over those two commandments for a sec, what really is number one in our life and what things, what stuff is trying to take that place? What's trying to muscle in? Is there anything you can see in your life that if that thing was taken away, there's no point in living anymore? an idol. The only thing that should be in our lives in that place is Christ. Without Christ there's no point in living anymore. Then we have the third commandment. Commandment number three. You shall not misuse the name of your Lord your God. The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Some translations say something like or take his name in vain. Now, I think around us, in our modern day culture, we see this all the time. A little while ago, one of my students in a lab, he's writing his code and he's, he, he curses Jesus' name because something's gone wrong. And I told him, Jesus didn't cause the bugs in your code. You're the only one that's typing at that keyboard, it's your fault. I got a very blank look. But there's a multitude of ways that God's name can be used and misused. Wherever we're using his name in a way that demeans his character, his person, his perfection, his grace and love, we're misusing it. So we've got the obvious one. We've got the swear word one where someone says, um, uses God's name as a swear word. And for some reason, these days, it's perfectly socially acceptable. It's less socially awkward than using some of the stronger swear words. But think about it for a sec. What people are doing is they're blaming the perfect son of God that gave himself for them on the cross for the cause of their everyday misfortune. They tripped over a rock or they, they wrote their, their code wrong and something's not working. They crashed into something, someone. Or maybe they just had breakfast cereal. doesn't need to be much, but that happens. One person I know draws attention to this on the golf course. He 
when he's playing golf, he's playing with some friends and if he hits a slice, goes off into the rough, into the trees, he uses their names. Bob, Jim. Or he uses Muhammad's name, for example. Oh, not very socially acceptable. Socially acceptable pick on Jesus, but not other people. We don't like our names being um, drawn through the mud. We don't like people picking on us. But we can do it for Jesus and that's another. We can bag him out. He's not going to say anything about it, is he? He says, I won't hold anyone guiltless who misuses my name. doesn't mean you'll be struck down with lightning, but there's worse that can happen than being struck down with lightning. Well, there's other ways as well, isn't there? Sometimes we, we make vows using God's name. What about in court? In court and someone brings a Bible up to you and says, you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God, and you put your, your, your hand on the Bible and promise to do so. If you don't, if you don't tell the whole truth and it becomes found out, the courts treat it very, very seriously. It's called perjury. If they don't find it out, God still knows. And what are you doing? You're saying, I promise on God's word that I'm going to tell the truth. I'm trying to associate my lives with his perfect character. It's not on. But it happens in other senses as well, doesn't it? We have lots of weddings. Husband and wife, they come up the front. Someone says, before God, family and friends, we're making these promises. God takes it seriously when we use his name. God takes it seriously when we bring him into the picture and when we use it in a trite way, in a, oh well, doesn't matter. God knows. There's other ways as well. What if we say something like, thus saith the Lord, and then say something that the Lord doesn't say? Or what if we say, this is what the Bible teaches, and then teach something that the Bible doesn't teach? We're professing to speak in God's name but doing what we call false teaching. And in almost every letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament, he's warning against people teaching false teaching, essentially saying, this is what God says, but hang on a sec, it's not what God says at all. Something that we need to be careful of, something that's very dangerous and something that needs to be on the lookout for. One final example. What if we live a life that... We tell everyone that we're a Christian but our life doesn't look like it at all. We tell everyone we're a Christian and the way we live causes people to slander God, causes people to say, hang on a sec, Christians are, are the biggest hypocrites of all. Christians are ridiculous. He obviously doesn't believe in God. God mustn't be powerful. God mustn't know anything. He mustn't really exist. But it must be all made up. Because he claims he's a Christian, but it doesn't affect how he lives one little bit. This is something that was happening in the Old Testament. The priests in the days of Malachi, but not just in the days of Malachi, in the days of Samuel as well, with Eli as well. But in Malachi chapter 1, God's very angry with the priests. Because they're the ones that are meant to be teaching the people about how to live. 
They're the ones that are speaking God's message to the people. And what do they do? Malachi chapter 1 tells us they give poor sacrifices to God. They make a show of serving God, but they do it in a weird way. Saying things like, it's just so hard to serve God, it's so much effort, it's so boring, why are we doing this? What do the people think? If this is the priests, if this is the ones that are meant to be representing God and they're bored out their brains trying to serve God, they're not really serving God, so people think, God mustn't be worthy of serving. His name mustn't be great. Not even worthy of mentioning. It's a bit of a habit that we can get into as Christians as well. It's wearisome serving God. No, it's not. We've got Christ that died for us. We've got Christ that says free. We've got Christ that transforms us. And if that's a wearisome truth, I think we need to turn back to Christ and say, sorry, I've been misusing your name. I've been living in a way that doesn't reflect the perfectness of what you have done for me. So where do we go from there? Let's think about how we're living our lives. Whose manual we're using? Are we using our instruction manual? Are we trying to create it ourselves? Or are we turning to Oprah or Dr Phil saying, they seem to have it together. They seem to know what's going on. God wrote it down for us. In stone, with his own finger. He tells us how he wants to live. And if we're not living that way, he says, repent and receive my forgiveness. Repent and come back to me. Repent, you're my children. Let's pray together and pray that God will continue to draw us close to him and enable us to live for him, to live for Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace and love. Thank you that you give us these commandments and even when we couldn't keep them, you give us Christ. You give us redemption. You give us a way out and you adopt us as your children. Help us, Lord, to live for you, to love you and to do it in a way that people will bring people will praise you and that our lives may bring you glory and honour. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.